Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining in today on another edition of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. We like to talk about all things life, leadership, lessons, and we tend to play in the world of sports and authors and music and comedy and just what's really relevant in culture. And I am super excited today to have with us Scott Sauls, who's the lead senior pastor. I don't know what the exact perfect title is of Christ Presbyterian Church, which is fairly close to where my folks and little sister in Nashville live. And he's known by several books. Uh, He's got a great blog that he does on a weekly basis. One of the things I'm very grateful for, Scott, is when I see you on social media and whatnot, you uh, do not live in a square room, but you're connected and knowing a lot of what's going on Obviously, in Nashville, it looks like you're connected to a lot of pastors, ministry leaders, things going on there. And uh, I've told you before, I'm just really grateful for your investment in my life. I've seen you on a screen a couple of times now. We've traded some messages here and there, but I feel like you are definitely a mentor of sorts for sure in my world. And anytime I cross your blog, I think I said to you an email today, I feel like I'm doing the 60,000 mile, 120,000 mile auto checkup because something's going to get tweaked. I got to ramp up on a number of things, and I know a little about cars, which is probably where I am spiritually, too, in some ways, but uh, I'm just grateful for your impact and your influence in my life. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. It's good to be with you. Give folks a little bit of your testimony, kind of the three minutes before Jesus as as God was drawing you in and coming to Jesus in the life of Scott Sauls. Sure. So I was what you know, I've often called an Ecclesiastes kid, right? I, I grew up in a in an environment where I was graciously provided with plenty of opportunity and just had, I guess, a lot more uh, in terms of options and possibilities. And so, you know, kind of threw myself into high school sports and, you know, those sorts of things and had you know, pretty successful sports life as a, as a high school student, won a state championship uh, in tennis, got several awards in basketball, you know, which were all the things that I had my hopes set on, got some offers to play college sports and things like that, which was like, which was my dream. And um, it never really materialized into the fulfillment that I thought it would. And this was at a, a pretty young age. I was a teenager and so I ended up going off to college. And, you know, I think what, what really, you know, pushed me into the kingdom was the combination of having heard the gospel from a, a man who's still a very good friend of mine, probably 15 years older than I am. He's a staff member for a ministry then called Student Venture, was an, which was a, a subsidiary of Campus Crusade for Christ, now Crew. Didn't really stick at that point in time. And then my last year of college, I you know had a, a breakup that broke my heart. And that sort of sent me into this existential crisis of 
you know, nothing really seems to be working out. I've got all this opportunity, all this possibility. People look at the optics of my life and, and think, oh, what a great life, but I just don't really want to live anymore. And mm. it was at that point in time that God brought uh, several fellow Christian now fellow Christians into my life who were just kind of on the periphery of my friendships in college. And they invited me to church with them and to campus ministry, which at that time was Fellowship of Christian Athletes at Furman University. And it was just taken by the gospel, taken by the kind of community and the kind of people that, that Jesus was forming on my own college campus. And I wanted in. And so I became a believer at that time. And I think my call into gospel ministry came almost simultaneously to my conversion. You know, up to that point, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, uh, what direction I was headed. And it all became pretty clear pretty early. And it was pretty ironic because, you know, at the time, the only two subjects in school that I'd ever struggled with were public speaking and writing. And those are now the two things that I do. And so it's a little bit of God's sense of humor there in terms of compelling me into a, into a calling that depended on my greatest weaknesses, you know, becoming my competencies eventually. And, and so there's a lot of kindness from God in, in terms of how he, you know, developed those parts of me that I used to be terrified of. And so, so anyway, that's, that's kind of the nutshell version. Do you ever look back at Got that? Got married along the way, had a couple of daughters. <laughs> you know, my wife, Patty's just the greatest. And and we're very proud of our daughters, too, both of whom are, are now out of the home, one in college and one about to get married. Yeah, I, I love, you know, I think we all say that with people you love seeing kind of the family side of people. But I know you had lunch, I think it was last week with one of your daughters in Atlanta. And it was just, you know, it looked genuine. Of course, somebody had to take a picture of you guys, but. It just looked like a, it looked <laughs> yeah. like a dad and daughter. Yeah, really a very the kind time. server at the pizza place yeah. in Atlanta. But it, it just looked very real and honest. Like you guys just enjoyed being together. And, you know, she's obviously an adult doing her thing. And as you were talking, I was thinking about my 15-year-old Alex who plays basketball. And, you know, we we watch a lot of basketball. There's a, a team in our kind of neck of the woods about 45 minutes from us that's really good, probably going to win a state, one of the best teams in the country. And, uh, you know, I think about what my dreams were like as a kid. I didn't have the talent you did. Love sports, thought I'd do something with sports. Now I'm doing something completely different. And even if I would have done what I would have dreamed of doing in sports, I can't imagine it'd be as great as what I'm doing now. So do you feel that way, especially when you talk about the writing and the speaking? Or is there part of you that's like, man, I could I could be playing rat okay, you're a little bit older, I guess, for that now to say you'd be playing Rafael Nadal or somebody at center court at the US Open or whatever. But or <laughs> no. That would be a delusional aspiration for me. Yeah, I won state, uh, which is a lot different than winning world <laughs> championships. You have to be in a whole different uh, category to to be able to compete at that level, for sure. But even um, college or, or just even oh. staying in that lane of doing something in the sports world, does that, does that ever feel like a dream dot? Or are you just like, no, kind of like I do that? man, I'm doing what God's called me to do. And this is different and skills came up that were not who I was, but mm -hmm. I love this. Yeah, I think it's that. I, I think I'm doing what God's called me to do. And the great thing about preaching and writing as opposed to athletics is that you can keep doing it when you're old. You know, yeah. you're not, you don't become a veteran at age 32. Uh, you know, you just get to keep going until, you know, older in life. So it's, it's a more, it's a more sustainable, durable calling in terms of, of longevity. So and it, it gets more 
meaningful for me personally every every single year it seems to get to do what we get to do yeah so tell me this since since uh, as you know i'm from i'm from nashville originally and was just there for the first time in a while several weeks back what's what's it like compare nashville tennessee to new york city which obviously we're infatuated with in this country a city like new york what's the differences what's similar because you've been in nashville now how many years several several years be 10 years march 1st and talk about compare and contrast those two cities doing ministry yeah so i actually talked about this yesterday in my sermon where in new york being a public christian wouldn't help you very much in terms of opening doors professionally socially and otherwise whereas in nashville which is sort of this got this history of being a bible belt town church on every corner you know christianity is sort of in the bloodstream of the city in many ways even though the landscape's changing it's still part of the bloodstream being a christian or calling yourself a christian can open a lot of doors it, it can help you get your kids into certain schools it can help you get interviews at certain organizations or universities it can help you get elected to you know public office if Christianity is part of your brand, uh, for, for lack of a better term, but but you don't want Christianity as part of your brand in New York, right? You're a Christian because the love of Christ has compelled you, and and you can do no other in New York, right? And so, so when you're in fellowship in in a city like New York or another secular city, you know you could you could fill in uh, all kinds of different you know cities like a Seattle or a Los Angeles or a San Francisco. You're a Christian because you're called to be a Christian. Whereas in a city like Nashville, you can be a Christian for a whole lot of other ulterior reasons. And yet that's changing. You know, Nashville has been referred to by both the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times as the third coast because of all the migration that's happening. There are people from uh, the major east and west coast cities that are that are moving here every single day at, at a rate of about 200 people per day uh, in Davidson and Williamson counties, which are the two you know, counties that are closest to the city of Nashville. And that's not uh, scheduled to stop that migration for quite some time. And, you know, even yesterday, serving people at the communion table who, you know, have been longtime actors or artists or, you know, sort of public people, politicians, et cetera, from, from the coasts who have, who have, since we've arrived, also arrived here for what Nashville is becoming. Amazon just set up its its second headquarters here. Mm. And that's just symbolic of what so many others are doing. And so, so we've got this massive secular migration, which portends to a different future for Nashville, which will require churches to become more like churches in cities like New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco and DC need to be in order to bear meaningful fruit in the way they do mission and love of their neighbor right and so in that sense you know this is one of the things tim keller told me when when we made the decision to move here from new york he said you know you're going to nashville from nashville's future mm. as if to say you know nashville is is becoming like the city that you're about to leave to go there and so you know it, we consider it a privilege to be on the front end of that life is a lot more comfortable in nashville because you know the the economics are different. The The price for a square foot of real estate is astronomically lower here, uh, even though that's changing as well. It's getting very expensive so and, and a lot harder to find a place to live here for folks who are moving here. But, you know, so it's starting to assume more kind of coastal urban dynamics 
but we're not quite there yet. In terms of receptivity to the kind of vision that Redeemer offered, you know, for the urban context of New York, all of the principles translate to the context that we're in, because Nashville is a city of influence in its own right, in many ways, a much more in a much more concentrated way than New York, mm. in that you're very likely on any given week to, to run into a public person, you know, in, in the grocery store or, you know, out walking in the park or, or whatever it is that you do to live your life. You're, you're a lot more likely to encounter, you know, somebody who's making significant impact in and beyond this city, uh, whether it's through music and the arts or through, you know, politics and public service, or whether it's through academia, there's all kinds of, it's just a city of great impact, you know, for good or for ill, um, you know, that, that, that can be a real positive that can also create issues uh, for, for our city. But I would say there, there's many similarities as there, as there are differences and as many differences as there are similarities. So you hit on something I want to hit on with you about politics, the arts, music, the like, sports, obviously it's big down or music, whatever. I remember several of your blog posts. You told the story the one time about, I can't remember if it was the Ryman or the Grand Ole Opry, about a woman who had been up on stage and you talked to her before or afterwards. And she said it was, the you know, all these people in the room cheering for her or whatever. And she was the loneliest person in the room. And she's like that in many places. You seem to not get giddy over stuff like that, but you seem to embrace yourself, your church, the people you're around being involved in those public spaces that are so large, eyes on them, impact. What about you stirs in that? I mean, why do you seem to real in a good way, really respond and understand the importance of being in those arenas? Well, you know, if you, if you are convinced by James Davidson Hunter's case that he makes in his book to change the world that that a lot of change that does happen for good or for ill does happen in the halls of power and influence whether you're talking about academia or politics uh you know government or or otherwise and you know and i also think and the bible attests to this that so much that, that has changed the world has happened you know from places of obscurity and and from you know, the overlooked places, you know, can anything good come from Nazareth, right? But even looking at the scriptures, you see, you see Christ elevating overlooked people like women and minorities and the poor and little children and, you know, folks who had disabilities who were kind of overlooked by society in those days and in those times. And, and he's sort of amplifying, you know, the dignity of, of these people and giving these these people from small places, from, from smaller places uh, and circumstances, an opportunity to have world-changing impact. But he doesn't do that to the neglect of, you know, also reaching uh, the highly educated, you know, public intellectual Saul of Tarsus or Daniel who has access to the emperor or Nehemiah who, who also has access to a king. You know, he, he's He's non-discriminatory in terms of of the kinds of people and places that, that he navigates to you know make the world a more just and beautiful and truthful place. And so the particular context that we have been called into here at Christ Presbyterian in Nashville is a lot like the context we came from at Redeemer in New York, that we just happen to uh, be a church that is filled with those kinds of 
people stewarding those kinds of positions. And our, our goal internally as a church is, you know, that the celebrities in our church are actually the people with disabilities and special needs and the kids in the youth group and the student ministry. Like these, those are the people that we draw the most attention to inside of our church, partly so that people who are constantly getting the spotlight on them and scrutinized in public can just have a place to be a human uh, without all of those, you know, that extra noise. And so we, we actually want to create a space in our church that enables people not to be of note, you know what I mean? And, and at the same time, as we lean in relationally with public people, uh, we want to do so recognizing the unique wounds, the unique loneliness and isolation uh, the unique uh, levels of criticism and uh, mischaracterization and character caricature that happens with public people, and to you know really you know heavily emphasize identity in Christ and belonging in the family of God. And this is not a place where you're going to be ostracized. This is a place where you belong at the table like anybody else who believes. And so it's kind of a mix, but it's. It's also a wonderful, unique opportunity to get to serve in this kind of space. So what's interesting about what you're saying, so I, I think I told you before, my family and my family who lives there, we went to an event you guys had around the 4th of July a couple of years ago. And, you know, I think if I was there in Nashville coming on a Sunday morning and then came back the following Sunday morning and I followed you around for a week, my guess is I could go into any place you may be, seeing you at church, seeing you go to a meal or grab a cup of coffee with someone relating to your staff. And I would see anybody. There's not one person, one profile of person, least last lost, thriving, doing well, that you would not be with. Now, much like Jesus, one of the things that goes with that is there's probably going to be some grief and heartache that people are going to send your way. Like, Hey, Whoa, what are you doing over there? Pastor Scott doing that. And you've been really good about, in your writings talking about, preaching something in a sermon and then getting a note or an email from someone. And you've, you've been funny about times when maybe you wanted to blast someone about an email or whatever, but being critiqued in your sermons and receiving that and going back and, and maybe if you felt like you need to repent, you repent or correcting or whatever. What kind of grief does someone like you get, Scott, when you, like I said, I would not be surprised to see you meet with anyone. And whether it's, you know, you guys do celebrate a lot of disabled and you've written plenty of blogs about it and kids and people underdeveloped or under equipped, um, what kind of grief does that range of people get for you where people are going to come after you? Yeah, I don't get a whole lot of grief from people in my church. I, I think, I think probably, you know, definitely most of the critique that I receive comes from the world of social media from people that I'm not in relationship with. And I think that's probably common to, you know, people with that silly little blue check next to their name, <laughs> you know, that you have people who really appreciate uh, the things that you say and you do. And then you have people who either don't like it or don't understand it. And, and then there are also always, you know, people out there who just, just are committed not to like you. And, and, I think that just goes with, you know, anytime you put, put your voice out there for anything, um, you know, you can be a, you can be a pastor, you can be a public figure, you can be a, a, a teacher at school in a school, you can be the leader of a company or an organization. And there's always going to be that dynamic of 
it's really a twofold dynamic. One is you're going to get you're going to get critiques that are legitimate, uh, that that are actually gifts to help you grow and become better at what God's called you to do and to be. And then you're going to get the critiques that are not fair and maybe ill-intended. And I think that the really important thing is to be able to discern the difference between those two things. And, you know, one, one of the people that I think does that better than anybody I've ever known is Tim Keller, where, you know, he's got this, this thing that he's written and, and spoken about, about how to receive an unfair criticism. And, and he, you know, kind of channels John Newton in this letter that John Newton once wrote to his young, you know, future pastor students about, you know, receiving unfair criticism. And basically the way that Tim has distilled it and summarized it is even with an unfair critique, uh, it's always good to look and see if there is a kernel of truth uh, in a mostly untrue critique, uh, which could create an opportunity to, to grow and to repent of something. And so, so, yeah, I mean, that takes a special level of humility, a special level of security in the gospel and in Christ to be able to listen to your critics in that way. And some days, you know, it's easier than others to do that, but I hope to never have a hard heart toward, especially toward fair critique or even partially fair critique. I hope I always have an open heart because I, w- I wouldn't want to miss the opportunity to, to change uh, and to grow, but you yes. know, it's those ill-intended ones that initially they sting. And then eventually you, you just, you learn how to discern them and, and filter them out. You know, I appreciate what you said there, and, you, and you're great about honoring a mentor and a partner of yours, and Tim Keller, the way you do, you did it last time we had a conversation, but he just got some critique recently about, and, and I went back and looked it up, he had referenced a conversation that Stephen Colbert had on his talk show, on the Late Late Show, and then he had to go back and kind of re-comment about it, because, you know, he made some comment about Stephen Colbert talking about his faith, which he's done before, he had a great, there was a great interview on 60 Minutes he did with Anderson Cooper a couple years ago, and of course, people were quick to want to be critical about, well, well, Stephen Colbert, he's this, he's that. And how can you, you know, that kind of stuff. And he tries to do a good job, I think, yeah. of clarifying. But it's like, are you serious? Like, I'm amazed sometimes at how much people who claim the name of Jesus and want to follow him will get so bent up about like a Kanye West or a Justin Bieber or a Stephen Colbert or whoever and act like, oh, well, come on, time out. There's no way that person knows and follows Jesus. And, and, uh, Tying that in with Keller, what is what is a way maybe that people would be surprised by and be informed that they didn't see coming that he had an impact on you? Yeah, so I think for me, the most impactful thing about Tim before I knew Tim was his gifts and his amazing skill at taking a passage of scripture and being able to so creatively and thoughtfully and compellingly talk about how it applies to life today, both private life, personal life, and public life. But that's probably number 10 on my list now. Uh, Mm. It's still on the list for sure. But I I think just being in kind of the Redeemer mix and, and getting, you know, to watch Tim up close and learn from him in a more personal way, a couple of things come to mind more than any other. One is that there's just this really wonderfully comprehensive vision for what a church could be, uh, both as a home and as a mission. 
so I think I think I think the vision that 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 Tim has uh, sort of drawn out from Scripture has become such a such an incredible resource for churches everywhere. And rather than belabor what that vision is, I can just point your listeners to Center Church, which is a book that he put together. It's a collection of his white papers on, you know, the church is a home and the church is a mission. Uh, and his, you know, of course, his his contribution to planting churches, global churches in strategic cities, that's high on the list. The third way approach where he's always taking things back to reconciliation under Christ, always eager to affirm uh, a certain uh, school of thought where that certain school of thought can be affirmed, but also always willing to critique that same school of thought where it needs critiquing from a gospel lens. And, and you know, that's probably got in most of his criticism because it's like this, this it's become known as this uh, kind of thinking called third way thinking, which is neither partisan right nor partisan left. And, and, and it's not even in the middle. It's not even centrist. It's, it, it, it seeks to transcend mm. as Christ transcends, wow. right? And so that's that's probably where he gets most of his critique is you know the sharpness from from a more partisan perspective, but the thing that the two things that have that I've come to appreciate the most about Tim's impact, one would be how his private character matches his public platform. There is no persona there, like mm-hmm. like the person you see in public. You know he's very smart, but he's also very humble and wants Christ to do the confronting. And so he's not, he doesn't try to be a confrontational person because he, he wants the gospel to do that work. I think rightly so. And so there's that, but, but I think his love for scripture, his personal private long-term love affair with scripture, you know, he reads the Bible devotionally all the way through at least once per year uh, he prays all the way through the the book of the Psalms, uh, the 150 Psalms, uh, once per month, and he's been doing that for over half a century. And so, if you wanna if you wanna understand what makes a per- how you can become like Tim Keller, mm. um, you know, a huge part of that is is to uh, to make it real uh, in your own life. There's certain things you can fake, and there's certain things that you can't fake, and and being an authentic follower of Christ is not something that you can fake, uh, especially with those that work for you and with you. But probably the most beautiful thing to me is how that long, extended decades of discipleship, faithful, quiet, private discipleship to match his public ministry, has led him to respond to incurable cancer. Uh, I had a phone call with him about a month, month and a half ago. And just asked him how he's doing. It's the cancer that he has. When it strikes, it, it, it acts quickly. And so he would say he's living on borrowed time, right? Wow. And yet he says he, he and his wife are happier than they've ever been during this season because, you know, all the stuff that, you know, he's been putting in his heart and his mm-hmm. mind every day, whether he feels like doing it or not, uh, has remained loyal uh, to to that invitation from Christ to come to Christ every day with the scriptures and prayer and those simple disciplines uh, has made him into that kind of person who's thankful and filled with gladness in the face of death, even more than he was filled with gladness at the peak of his ministry and at the peak of his physical health. 
you know, I love about what you're saying. It goes way beyond any kind of devotional life that any of us could have. I've been thinking a little bit lately about discipleship in general, and I really like, you know, Second Timothy 2, 2, and I like discipleship's about being a learner, a follower, and a discipler yourself. But I've been, I feel like God's been really kind of showing me, it really goes back to, again, the thin spaces between me and God. It's what is he investing in me? When you're talking praying through 150 Psalms a month, wow, that's pretty robust. I mean, that is not, all right, Lord, you're getting the first 15 minutes of my day. That is a guy mm-hmm. that is allowing a, a deep well to be dug. So, Scott, let's let's ask you to speak. You know, this kind of flows in from Redeemer to Christ Prez, and maybe Christ Prez was already doing some of this, but I know you take very seriously the workplace. You take very seriously business, commerce. You take very seriously personally, like few people I've ever seen. You know other pastors. You know other ministry leaders. When that one Episcopal priest died in that tragic car wreck, uh, within the last year there in Nashville. I think I saw some stuff even tied to you with that. Like you just, you know, the bigger, broader Christian landscape of your community. Where does that develop? Is that just natural in who you are? Do you have to work hard to do that to not just be about the four walls, the Christ prez and your most current blog or the newest book you're, I mean, how, cause you could easily say no to any of that stuff and nobody's gonna really say much cause you gotta, you got a lot on your plate, but you seem to really get outside your four walls. Yeah, I think it's it's part of our DNA as a church, and part of that, I guess, points to me and how God's shaped and wired me. I don't think that the kingdom of God is confined in a denomination or in a single church, and we're better and we're stronger for being connected, uh, both within our, you know, first and foremost, within our own tribe and denomination, but but also, you know, in the broader body of of Christ. And so, so yeah, that's always been a priority to to nurture and receive invitations into a relationship with with people who are you know from other traditions and doing other really great ministry both locally and beyond. That's always been just part of how we approach what we do, and you know, it's just a lot to be learned from outside our own context. Mm. And and I find too that especially when those relationships are with other pastors, you can. You can talk about, you know, the unique joys and challenges and burdens and hopes of, of your calling in a way that you sometimes can't uh, with the people that you pastor. Mm. And, and so it's just helpful to, you know, C.S. Lewis says, you know, he's got this place in, I think it's the four loves where he says, friends are made when one person looks at another and says, oh, you too, I thought I was the only one. Mm. And, and I think I think pastors just in a lot of a lot of times in their own communities feel just unique uh, and, and and uniquely isolated. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though you're the most known person in 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 your church, you may be among the most isolated because of of that you know sort of natural barrier dynamic that that happens be- between you know pastor congregant and sure. and as hard as you work to you know create equal ground there. It's very hard to just have a pure peer relationship in the church that you pastor, mm-hmm. possibly in the same way that it'd be very hard for a, a CEO uh, of a company to have a pure peer relationship or a parent to have a pure peer relationship with their child, right? Yeah. Or vice versa. And, you know, it's helpful to have others who are kind of walking the same walk, or living so. a similar life and a similar calling. So that's always been a great encouragement as well. Wow. Very encouraging there. 
Well, hey, we're going to shift gears and lighten it up a little bit. So I've got these rapid five, five questions I like to ask. They're kind of quick hitting, go far, go fast. So what is your favorite childhood snack or cereal, Scott? Childhood snack or cereal? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's hands down peanut butter crunch. Oh, wow. Wow. No, no rivals, no rivals, no equals. That was like the second tier, uh, like a sequel to Captain Crunch, right? It didn't come out at the same time, did it? Oh, it was an improvement on Captain Crunch. <laughs> you yeah. You it are, was next level, next level Captain Crunch. You are yeah. strong in that belief, I could tell. So <laughs> what is your favorite book not written by Scott Sauls or Tim Keller that you most like to gift to other people? There's actually three of them. Wow. You want me to just pick one? No, I'll go for all three. Every Moment Holy, which is a, a book of liturgies about, you know, the ordinary stuff of life by Doug McKelvey. Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nowen and Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. Wow. Third question. If your girls are back home, they're living with you, they're not on their own, and you guys are going on vacation, and if you're like us, we can never plan the perfect lunch stop. Somebody either has to go to the bathroom 15 minutes too early or we didn't judge traffic right or whatever, and we're going to get off of this exit and we see these three places – McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, In-N-Out Burger. Where does Team Saul's go of those three? Chick-fil-A. That was quick. Any reason yep. particularly why? McDonald's. So when we, when we were touring the, the high school that, that, that our daughters ended up going to, we got some time with all the different teachers. And the science teacher showed us an experiment where she took a McDonald's cheeseburger and basically dropped it in a solution that it would, that would expose how much protein and how much fat is in the burger. Mm. And, 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 oh, and it, 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 it revealed and sodium and it revealed immeasurable amounts of fat and sodium and zero protein. So uh. Uh, the point was to, you know, say, this is what you're putting in your body. So we've never been back to McDonald's ever since. <laughs> uh, and so in and out burger, and I know I'm going to really offend, uh, especially some West coast oh, yeah. friends, but uh, if the word overrated means anything to you, <laughs> uh, I think that in and out burger is way overrated. Wow, you kind of fitted um, me a little bit here, Bob. I, I think it's a great brand uh, with great brand loyalty <laughs> with media, mediocre food. Uh, but Chick Fil A, I mean, I, I would order Chick Fil A at a at a nice restaurant. You know, if if it were on the menu, because it's just so good. It's that good. Can I dare you to post on social the, the way you emphasize the word overrated about In-N-Out Burger? Because I think you might get some of the most controversy you've ever had before. <laughs> the truth will set you free. Invite friends. that one in and see what people do with that one. So, hey, no, the, I'm not going to do that, Jeff. I'm not going to do it. What is the yeah. movie that pulls you in every time? If you're flipping channels, you're doing a streaming thing, you catch like it 20 minutes into the movie. What's a movie that you're like, oh, we got to put aside what we're doing. We're staying with this movie. What movie would Napoleon that be? Napoleon Dynamite. No way. So here's what's way. crazy. The radio station I'm at right now, uh, about two months ago, uh, what's his name? Who's the star of it? John Heater. John Heater. Him and I think one or two other characters from the movie were just up here at a theater. Uh, they re-showed Napoleon Dynamite and they answered questions and people were nice. totally geeked out to be up here to check that out. So that's a pretty funny one. I did not see that one coming. Great. I expected a little. As, Nap as Napoleon would say, it's the best video ever made. Wow.
I expected something much more meaty and heartfelt and potentially bringing you to tears. No, I'd rather answer honestly than pretentiously <laughs> on that. So the best question I have for you, and I really want to know this since you're just a tad, I'm 52. How old are you? 53. So you're a tad mm -hmm. older. There's a couple of right answers here. Who is your first celebrity crush? Olivia Newton-John. Oh, wow. That, that has to be Grease, Olivia Newton-John, yep. right? Okay. Yeah. I always say it's either Maureen McCormick, Marsha Brady, or it would be Elizabeth Shue. Good choices. Okay, good. I, I, I wasn't going to pause there and not have you say, you got to respond to that, especially Elizabeth yep. Shue. On some level, you had to respond there. So, so I'm really, you know, again, I, I've consumed most everything you've written on some level at some point, sometime. I think I told you before it was on Easter a number of years ago is when I kind of stumbled across your content and really drank it in. So June 14th, beautiful people don't just happen. How God redeems regret, hurt, and fear in the making of better humans. Why should that book be moved to the top of the list? What is the timing of that book? I, I would hate to say that my book should be moved to the top of the list for anyone because there are so many outstanding books out there. But I can tell you why I wrote it and who I wrote it for. I, I think we live in a, in a world where everybody's fighting a battle on some level with regret, hurt, and fear. Or, you know, other words you could use are, are guilt, pain, anxiety. You, you, could, you could fill in the blank. I think everybody's got some level of all three of those. And I think the gospel speaks meaningfully to all three of those. Uh, and so the book is, is in many ways an attempt to do that. Uh, a lot of it is through the telling of my own story and some, you know, poking fun at myself and some very serious uh, anecdotal stuff about my life, as well as, you know, drawing in some great resources from people that I've learned from, you know, from a long time ago and, and from, from more recent days. But the book is especially written for that person and also for the people who have been in position to come alongside them. So mm. pastors, ministry workers, therapists, counselors, you know, ad addiction sponsors, Parents uh, working with, you know, coming alongside their struggling children, you know, friends who show up for hurting for other hurting friends. And, and so hopefully the book can be a resource for helpers and those who are in need of help can benefit from uh, as they walk together. Uh, so it's written for a number of purposes. I, I'd rather the book be considered in community as opposed to in isolation, even though it's written for the benefit of both. Yeah. When we've done your books, there's been a great sense of that community being played out well. I think people have really enjoyed the books we've done of yours that have really packed a punch. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine a book like this not being, you know, the same way. Uh, you know, Jesus Outside the Lines is probably the book for us that's really packed a punch and people have really responded well. And, you know, you deal mm -hmm. with some meaty topics and there are some controversial things. But the last question, and, you know, answer this in a couple minutes and, and then we'll close out. What is your process or funneling? of your yeses and your no's? Like when I've chatted with you now, before, you know, sending you a note or whatever, you just never seem rushed. You seem very fully present. And that sounds like a great thing to say, but you really do. So you must have a great system of saying yes and saying no. What does that help people listening understand what does that look like? How do we get better at our yes be yes and our no be no? I mean, I, I appreciate that, you know, flattering perception, but I, you know, I, 
I don't think I have these things mastered. I would say probably though, along those lines, the best thing I've done is, oh, and I can't remember the book that helped me with this, but I've, I've created a system where I can offload things out of my brain onto a piece of paper so that I have the ability to wipe them out of my mind and be present and not feel the stress of having to remember something to follow through with. Uh, and really what that amounts to is that, that I've got, well, here, I'll pull it out here. That's it. That's my checklist. And it has different sections. I've got the checklist of things that I'm responsible to, to do every week, uh, you know, which would be things like sermon preparation, certain phone calls to family members, things like that. And then I've got, you know, the, the stuff that I need to tackle this week. That's, that's more one-off stuff. Uh, and so I write all that down. I go through the schedule upcoming and the meetings I need to prepare for and everything else. And I just kind of list it and put it in front of me. And then I've got a personal column where, you know, all the stuff that needs to take place at home. And then I've got a pending on pause, take mm. care of it at a later date thing. So, so things that I've committed to that I can't get to right now to make sure that I don't forget them. I, I have one little bucket on this, you know, mm. sheet of paper here that they stay in until I can take them up into the get it done this week or this month category or column. And just to be able to have that system and I create a new checklist every Monday morning enables me to wipe things out of my mind so that I can be fully present at a dinner or in a meeting or in a conversation like this one. And so that's it, not to say that I always am fully present. You know, sometimes I'm in a conversation, but I'm actually fully present somewhere else sure. because of distraction. But that system probably makes me 90% better at having a chance of being fully mm. present, if that makes sense. Wow. But I think we need a system where we, where we can put the stuff down that sure. we need. To, we can write the stuff down that we need to get to and put it away. And until it's time to take it back up again. Wow. That's, that's neat to see. It was neat to see the visual of that. So, well, Scott, people I know can find you on scottsauls.com, scottsauls.com slash blog. Where else would you point people to, to know any and all things Christ Prez? Is it .org? I think. Is yeah, that's our church. Yes. Yeah, that's our church website. What Christprez.org. else? Where, where else would people go? Twitter at Scott Sauls. Uh, you could find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram if you're a so, you know social media person. Yeah, and then be ready for June 14th with beautiful people coming out that Tuesday. Well, Scott, thanks for thanks time. For you're always a blessing. Like I said, I feel like you expand my view of the kingdom. I, I feel stretched based on how you're stretched, and uh, you know you're definitely to me a First Corinthians 11:1 1 example. So, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate it, Scott. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.